and welcome back to the Mindful Symposium series, a service of the University of Houston's Yoga and Mindfulness Research Lab. Today, we have on Dr. Ronald Purser. Dr. Purser earned his doctorate in organizational behavior from Case Western University. He has taught management at both the graduate and undergraduate levels at San, at San Francisco State University uh, in the College of Business and at Loyola University of Chicago. He has co-authored and edited eight books, one of which is the subject of today's conversation, McMindfulness. His work engages critical perspectives on mindfulness in society and how it be can become a reflective pedagogy for its social and political change towards a more just society and an inhabitable earth. Dr. Purser, welcome to the Mindful Symposium series. Thank you, Chase. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So before we go any further, I just want to get a gauge of how you're feeling, um, you know, everything being uh, as it is now, you know, I just want to understand how you've been, uh, you know, the last couple of days and, and more broadly in uh, quarantine life? Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think at first it was a little bit disorienting and very kind of uh, took a while. And I, I've settled, really settled into it. And, um, you know, it's like a, turning it into like a retreat in a way. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I've just got, gotten totally into like uh doing a lot of gardening uh every day planting i've like planted a vegetable garden uh, this week uh uh you know i have a dog so I, and i walk my dog at least an hour to an hour and a half a day because i live close to the ocean so i'm very privileged in that way i mean i understand my privilege to be able to do that um uh yeah, I, I've lost like almost 28 pounds since COVID. So, wow. uh, yeah, I feel like I've gotten, uh, I had the time to kind of try to get healthier. And, uh, you know, now that everything's kind of died down with, uh, I had a, a really busy year with, with doing interviews, media interviews. I did like over 80 different media interviews. And so once things, especially with when COVID, uh, it's it's really been giving me the space and time to uh, kind of seriously go back to more the contemplative studies that I've been wanting to do because I've been more out there kind of doing things and uh, to be honest with you you know uh, I'm I'm a I'm a kind of a, an extreme introvert so uh that was quite a growth phase to be uh, in the public eye so much uh in the media uh, but i uh i kind of went with it and uh you know i'm i'm glad it's over <laughs> so that's kind of where i'm at uh, it's great to hear i'm glad that you've you've been able to adjust and that it's been a nice productive time um, recently and so something that you mentioned there that going back into your contemplative studies and getting to dive a little bit more into that actually leads me uh, into my first question. Um, and from my understanding, you have a background as a mindfulness teacher and a practitioner. So could you tell me a little bit about how you became involved in mindfulness and I guess contemplative studies uh, more broadly? Yeah, I would qualify that a bit. I, I wouldn't characterize myself as a mindfulness teacher, really. Um, uh, I do... I have been a student uh, of Buddhism, probably a uh, off and on student. Some periods of my life have been more intensely 
on and other times off. So uh, I think I'm coming back into the on phase again, finally. So, uh, uh, but uh, I've never really taught uh, any mindfulness course, uh, really. Um, uh, so, although I have been uh, through numerous teacher trainings, but I've never, uh, I've never uh, been, you know, creating uh, groups or courses yet. Uh, but I, I am thinking now that uh, I will be doing that. I've been taking uh, a two-year training from Dharma College in Berkeley, California. Uh, it's uh, a teaching called the, the Lotus Trilogy. It's a series of three books by a Tibetan Lama, Tarthang Tuku, who is actually probably my first Buddhist teacher that I've I've kind of followed his work and studied his work since 1982, and uh, so I'm kind of coming full circle with that, and just finished up the teacher training program, um, and probably by the spring of next year I may be teaching that uh, through Dharma through Dharma College, uh, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, but yeah, um, to make a long story short, uh, my contemplative studies have been focused on uh, an unusual work by this Tibetan Lama who I just mentioned, Tarthang Tuku. He has a series of books, starting with a book that came out in 1977 called Time, Space, and Knowledge, A New Vision of Reality, which is a remarkable book, a very difficult book, very hard to access for most people. It was for me for many years too. And there's a series of other books that were are much more accessible. Uh, but so it's those teachings and those practices that have been uh, most influential uh, for me uh, going 35, 40 years now. And what was that book about? What about that book was so impactful to you? That book uh, was a highly rigorous philosophical investigation on the one hand uh, of challenging our basic sense uh, of how we are as human beings in terms of our understanding of space or our, our own human embodiment mm -hmm. in space and our own lived experience as it unfolds in time and the kind of knowing we bring to bear on our life experience. So that's why it's called time, space, and knowledge. They're like the fundamental facets of human experience. Uh, so the book was a philosophical investigation of challenging our conventional presuppositions uh, about our own uh, sense of uh, self, uh, our own sense of uh, uh, embodiment, our, our sense of lived time, for example, uh, we tend to see time as being linear, as unfolding from the past to the present to the future, as kind of a momentum that uh, uh, we don't question. And that our ways of knowing are uh, very dualistic in the sense of uh, feeling a sense of separation, uh, a subject-object kind of uh, dualism. So this philosophical investigation was uh, really quite well done uh, in the book. But it was complemented, and this is what was really quite engaging, it was complemented by a series of 35 
meditative exercises that uh, tracked the philosophical inquiry. So I, I think what is most, uh, imp not important, not the right word, but what's, what's really interesting about it is that uh, it brings to bear using our intelligence and our critical intelligence. In other words, we're not just uh, meditating to become calm and quiet in a state of some sort of like a state of uh, quiet, but we're actually trying to uh, intensify our questioning ability. Uh, and, 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 and bringing that into how limits arise in our daily experience, the limitations that we feel we experience, whether those are emotional afflictions or mental afflictions, uh, all the range of uh, negative emotions, whatever it may be, our sense of attachments to things, all of that. So it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a way of, of bringing, you could say, creative inquiry uh, critical inquiry into our uh, into our experience, uh, which does not require necessarily being in a formal state of meditation or a state of uh, mindfulness uh, practice. The practice is the arising of experience. That's intriguing because it, it definitely seems to echo in McMindfulness. And before we dive too much further into that, I, I'd like you. To, for anybody who is not familiar with the, the book, how would you introduce McMindfulness and how would you explain it? Yeah, um, well, there's, there's different levels to McMindfulness. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's a bit of a pejorative term um, <laughs> that uh, you know, draws from McDonald's to kind of signal the commodification commercialization uh, of, uh, of a, uh, uh, well, commercialization, instrumentalizing a practice for commercial gain. I mean, that's sort of the surface level of McMindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, backing up, you know, I, it, just to kind of probably a good place to start would be, you know, the rise of the mindfulness, so-called mindfulness revolution, really took me by surprise in many ways because mm -hmm. it, it happened really quick. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of really took off probably around, I don't know, it's hard to put your finger on it, but by 2010, uh, yeah. the curve was going up, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I was sort of stunned by that because, uh, um, you know, because, you know, Buddhist meditation was seen as countercultural, uh, something that was done by hippies and beatniks and bohemian artists. And, and, and it was countercultural, you know, it was everything again, you know, countercultural, anti-establishment, anti-materialist. And then and suddenly, you know, how did it morph into like a $1 billion, $1.5 billion industry uh, where you see, you know, mindfulness teachers going to the World Economic Forum in Davos, you know, uh, that was like a remarkable change. And so that caught my attention. And, um, and uh, so I was trying to understand the phenomena uh, what led to it, what were the forces behind it, what, was, what were the rhetorical strategies that were being used, the, kind of the, the claims that were being made, uh, how did that occur? Uh, so I felt there was, you know, uh, the hype, you know, the hype, the media hype is really what really kind of also catapulted it uh, into, a, into a mainstream kind of cultural phenomena. Those questions led me, led me to the critique. And so the book was really meant to kind of be kind of like a public intervention in a way 
kind of like uh, I had to write it in a polemical style um, to get above the noise, kind of to prov provide kind of a uh, counterbalance to the overly uh, celebratory and uncritical rhetoric that was out there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think uh, mindfulness it's commodified, it's instrumentalized, it's decontextualized. It's uh, kind of uh, has kind of a bias towards uh, individualism. Uh, it's kind of disconnected from what C. Wright Mills, famous sociologist, called the sociological imagination. So it reduces uh, most social ills into individualized uh, behavioral or therapeutic issues and problems. Uh, yeah, McMindfulness is sort of the you know, like fast food, it's the quick fix that can easily be consumed. And, um, and you know, the crass side of it is very kind of the self-help entrepreneur side of it. Um, but, you know, I don't deny in the book that uh, the clinical side of, of, of mindfulness has therapeutic benefits. And uh, I, don't, I don't deny that. In general, you know, mindfulness is sort of the symbol or the signal for uh, how this commodity or instrumental technique becomes kind of a quick fix for basically the anxieties of late capitalist society uh, kind of seen as a panacea. And then the other part of the critique that con connects to that is that because it's kind of a privatized, become a privatized capitalist spirituality, it kind of joins the ranks of many other capitalist spiritualities from, from historical trends. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't new. This is kind of a trend that's, going on if you look at jeremy carrot and richard king's book Selling spirituality the corporate takeover of religion or something like that they 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 really chronicled but it was their book was written in 2005 so it was before the mindfulness movement came into be into uh into being uh but uh yeah it's focused on self-improvement uh it's it's kind of been under the umbrella of uh wellness the wellness industry too and it's a very superficial, not only from just reading your book, am I learning a little bit more of it from a more philosophically rigorous um, a perspective, but just the experience of mindfulness. It is sold as a self-help uh, self -help form of, of solve all of your problems. And you know what's wrong with you. You've got too many thoughts. And maybe if we could get rid of some of those <laughs> thoughts, you would be so much happier, which is, it's, it's almost demeaning in a way. And I, you go into a little bit about the demeaningness of that situation and how we strip um, the uh, real problems of uh, economic, racial, social injustice that are the causes of some of the anxieties and the negative thoughts that we're having. Um, and we've now made a revolutionary practice extremely anti-revolutionary. So could you tell me a little bit about like how we got from a, a part, a, a story really of a, a young prince realizing that the wealth was too much. We need to give away all of the wealth and maybe that there's some fear in between of absolute poverty and absolute, uh, absolute rich to just uh, a, a technological form of mindfulness that is only instrumental uh, and only practical insofar that it can expedite or uh, increase capitalist gains. Yeah, that's a really good comment and question there, Chase. Appreciate that. Um, there's a lot in that, so I'll try to unpack it a little bit. Uh, yeah, one other thing that we didn't, I didn't say is 
that McMindfulness, another distinguishing feature is that um, it's kind of value neutral uh, because when you turn it into a tool or technique, uh, when you instrumentalize, uh, it's because it's become instrumentalized, uh, it's lacking kind of the guidance, the moral compass of, uh, you know, what's the purpose of mindfulness? What is it for? Uh, whose interest does it serve? Uh, so it's lacking a kind of that embeddedness within a moral and ethical framework. Um, and it, yeah, like you said, it's so, uh, it, it kind of promotes the self-orientation in a way because, oh, this is good for you. This will improve your career, you know. Uh, you'll be a, a better hedge fund manager on Wall Street. I mean, really, I mean, this stuff is, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, and uh, another aspect that has a lot to do with its rise in mainstream culture and the mainstreaming of mindfulness is uh, how uh, how it's become uh, uh, scientized, how it's become the scientific community has uh, latched onto it. Uh, and so that becomes part of the, you could say the, I don't know if you're familiar with Nicholas Rose's work. Uh, he's a sociologist out of the United Kingdom. He really influenced me a lot. Um, uh, he talks about what he calls the side disciplines. That's P-S-Y. And the side disciplines are uh, how expert authority uh, comes into play and in, 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 uh, shapes institutions. And, and so the academic science complex is part of the mindfulness industry. And, and that has a tremendous influence in terms of uh, creating kind of the, the dominant discourse uh, and I talk about that in the book about that the dominant discourse is kind of situated within a biomedical paradigm because, you know, it came out of hospitals, it came out of uh, clinics. And, 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 and so when you have it within that paradigm, it already is saying that the individual needs treatment. It's the individual, right? So you've already kind of limited the discourse by, by having it in that paradigm which is fine. I mean, it does deliver those benefits to individuals, but um, the, the issue is uh, when it becomes uh, diffused uh, through other cultural domains, you know, it's not just now in hospitals, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's in all the institutions, you know, government and schools and the military corporations. So um, what, ha what happens then is that uh, it then uh, can be, as you mentioned, uh, co-opted uh, for instrumental ends. So corporations is the perfect example of that. There's a privatized spirituality. Um, you know, uh, Carrot and King, they talk about, they use the term, the accommodationist becomes accommodationist orientation. So it's easily accommodated to serve the ends of those enterprises and those institutions. Uh, and so it functions then, maybe unintentionally, uh, to pacify feelings of anxiety at the individual level and helping individuals to adjust, to cope, uh, to accommodate to the status quo of those, of those institutions. Rather than opening up dialogue, opening up discourse, opening up inquiry to, to let, hey, let's look at, okay, yeah, I'm feeling stressed, but why is that? Is it just because uh, I'm lacking the ability to concentrate and focus? Or has, could it be that I have a boss breathing down my neck? I have a job that doesn't allow me any decision-making. Uh, I have to work long hours. I don't have health care. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, have, uh, you know, 
that, those kind of uh, social and structural systemic issues. Um, uh, so it doesn't really offer that kind of challenge, like you said, uh, to challenging social, political, economic inequalities, injustices. Um, so we have a $1.5 billion industry, uh, maybe $2 billion. It's, uh, and so that should give us pause and ask, you know, if it's that market friendly, um, maybe that should, you know, open up, you know, some questions about uh, what's going on. Uh, but, you know, um, I think the, uh, the other issue, and I've been thinking about this more, um, maybe this is a different question, a different issue is that, uh, and this applies to Buddhist meditation. I mean, it's not limited to just mindfulness or mindfulness is that, um, a lot of meditation practice can really go south, can really go sour uh, in terms of uh, reinforcing a self-orientation. Um, and maybe maybe I'm getting a little too Buddhist now because, um, um, I mean, the aim of Buddhist practice is, is not to increase the self-orientation. Uh, right. It's not to uh, reinforce the ego. It's not to reinforce a sense of... Uh, mm, you know, separation. Um, and, you know, a lot of meditation practice uh, doesn't really, uh, you s doesn't really question the nature of mind. Uh, I know I'm really going off in a different direction now. Um, it doesn't really offer that sort of inquiry. And, uh, and so uh, when we practice that way, um, we may be kind of deceiving ourselves in a way, maybe feeling better about ourselves, maybe feeling some relief and everything, but um, I would say that the deep transformative liberatory aspect of the practice is, is probably not going to occur. Not that everyone looks for that, and a lot of people come to mindfulness, you know, just for stress relief, and that's basically what it was sold for, uh, is stress reduction. But again, the problem comes back again, that even when we talk about stress, that uh, stress is a modern concept that just kind of came about in the 1980s. Really, stress has a history to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because McMindfulness uh, psychologizes, individualizes, and medicalizes uh, social problems, right? Even our view of stress. So, uh, uh, so when stress itself is seen as an individual pathology, like you said, you know, it's our ruminations, our mental ruminations and everything, uh, then, then we, we bear the burden. We, we say, okay, uh, you know, uh, it must be my fault that I'm feeling stressed and it must be a dysfunction the way in my habitual thoughts and my reactions and mental. No, that's not to say that we're not partly responsible for our reactions. Obviously we are, but we're not 100% responsible for our stress. There are stressors that mm -hmm. are social and political and economic. And I think um, it's just that the pendulum with the mindfulness movement swung way over to the individual side, right? The, um, and um, I, I think that's why it's sold so well, because it serves the interest of like corporations that you know, really takes responsibility off corporations to do any fundamental change. Instead, they can put the burden on individuals to to adapt to the stressful environments they're in. Mm -hmm. So 
that to me is um, problematic. Uh, and, and mindfulness is also problematic because, like you said, it's seen as a do-it-yourself DIY self-help technique and as a standalone practice, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, that's why you, you have a, a burgeoning uh, mindfulness uh, app industry, you know, Headspace and Common, it's a DIY, you know, individualized practice. Yeah, and I, when reading your book, I definitely thought about that. And I was having a discussion with one of our other lab mates, Saeed, and we were talking about how Paul Ryan is like an active practitioner of mindfulness, which would have like never crossed my mind. I would have never put Paul Ryan in the same bucket as mindfulness, but going through your 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 deconstruction of mindfulness as this atomized, like individual, almost entrepreneurial um, exploit that you can uh, you can go through. It really started to make sense because it, it seems Burkean. It seems like traditional conservative philosophy, uh, but it also seems to me that it's like particularly American. So, have you noticed that there's any difference in the way that uh, other cultures have absorbed? Uh, uh, Buddhism and mindfulness into their own uh, and incorporated it because to me it seems like this is a uniquely American issue that we've we've atomized it to this this individual you need to solve your own problems and do everything like that. Yeah, it's definitely uh, yeah that's that's kind of the irony of it in a way because um, John Kabat-Zinn um, uh, he kind of comes across or kind of uses these talking points that mindfulness is the universal essence. Um, uh, it it, it kind of creates this illusion of an ahistorical uh, that somehow Americans don't have a context. It's context free, you know, because when you, when you use universalizing rhetoric, um, you're basically kind of, you're kind of engaging in kind of a cultural erasure uh, historical and cultural erasure, uh, and even whitewashing in in many ways. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of a kind of a uh, uh, inheritance of Western colonialism to to make a claim that uh, we have the universal essence. We know better. You know, we can extract. You know, like uh, like we extracted uh, raw materials. You know, out of uh, countries, you know, we can we can extract what's useful to because we know better than those superstitious Asian people over there. Because uh, and then we have the scientists too, so you know, uh, obviously we know what mindfulness is. is. We're getting um, rid of all that mumbo jumbo, all the mumbo jumbo, all the cultural baggage, right? Well, cultural baggage has a lot to do with <laughs> the cosmology, has a lot to do with the ethical framework, it has a lot to do with many other kind of supportive practices. Uh, so, uh, but I, I guess where I'm going is, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, so, you know, the, like sociological studies that North Americans are don't think they they have a culture. It's American exception, except, exceptionalism in a way, mm-hmm. right? We're, you know, obviously everyone should be like us. Uh, um, and uh, so I think it suffers from that. Uh, you know, there, uh, Jamie uh, Kuzinskis, I can never pronounce her last name correctly. She wrote a book, I have it here, uh, called The Mindful Elite. 
and she did her doctoral dissertation uh, on a, kind of a sociology, a sociological study of the mindfulness movement. And she basically says, look, it's an elite white movement led by elites that had the cultural currency to, to make wow. connections in, in these institutions and to get access. And the way they did is by cooperating with those institutions such a way they didn't make waves, they didn't challenge anything. That way they can get it in the door, right? But over time, you know, I think it basically comes uh, co-opted by those mm -hmm. institutions. Um, so yeah, Paul Ryan is, uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, I, uh, I picked on him a lot in the book. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to a previous thing that you mentioned, um, these side tools and the way that we, uh, that most of the modern tools exist within some sort of psychological or uh, mental schematic framing. Um, and one thing that really popped out from your book was um, you, you used Foucault. Uh, a couple of times, and it really, really struck me because there does seem to be some sort of like panopticonic effect that is occurring, wherein uh, the at the center of this great, uh, this great institution is like this idea that you should be happy. This is what you want. This is the great thing. Um, and now we're using mindfulness as a tool of self-regulation to ensure that process continues, so that we are keeping uh keeping in good light of that pan opticonic effect so i guess my where how do we get out of that you know uh foucault offers some answers but I, it's always been a great philosophical conundrum to me like how does one get out of the pan opticon uh, or in boldrow's term the simulacrum that mindfulness has become yeah that's great yeah oh yeah yeah that's really right on um yeah um yeah that yeah uh, I'm, I'm just thinking myself in a minute. Um, um, yeah, it's the great question. It's like, how do you <laughs> how do you break down the great technocratic structures that the state has imbued and that we've internally privatized? Because one of the things you point out is like, th there's a continuing theme of puritanism. This like yeah. the, the evil thoughts are like the thing that we no longer are confessing to a pastor. We're telling to our gods. We're telling them to our meditation teachers or to our meditation apps. Oh, the confession. Uh, yeah. The confession, yeah, the confessionalism yeah. of it all. And it's, 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 you know, we haven't figured out how to break out of it now. So I am asking you a very <laughs> difficult question. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. Um, uh, I'm just, I'm kind of riffing just in my mind right now. I never really thought of this before. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, there is a school within Tibetan Buddhism. Well, Tibetan Buddhism is kind of uh, characterized as the Vajrayana. It's another vehicle. So you have uh, uh, the Theravada tradition, which is the early tradition of Buddhism, where it's probably closest to what we see uh, in terms of clinical forms of mindfulness. Uh, there's a long history. I won't go into it about uh, basically how people like uh, Goldstein, Joseph Goldstein, and uh, Sharon Salzberg, the people who started uh, the Insight Meditation Society, uh, they were basically the carriers of bringing what we see now of Western Vipassana Insight Meditation 
they were in Burma, they were in Thailand and India, you know, in the 60s. Uh, but what they brought over was a very what modern form of mindfulness, already modernized. I won't go into that long history. Um, and then it was further uh, westernized, further psychologized, you know, once it came here, over, and especially once Kabat-Zinn took it and turned it into mindfulness-based stress reduction. Then it becomes a complete psychological clinical technique. But the point I'm going with this is that um, in the Vajrayana tradition, um, there uh, are practices uh, that have to do with embracing one's complete uh, emotions and, and transmuting them. In other words, uh, you're not trying to suppress anger or even watch it or observe it you're actually uh, through these practices actually use the energy of negative emotions fully and they they transform to their uh, enlightened or awakened qualities mm -hmm. uh, so I'm thinking that uh, in a way it's kind of like a Nietzsche uh, approach because he saw you know religion is kind of doing the same thing you're saying uh, and in a way, it's it's trying to use our, you know, our anger. I mean, look at social justice movements. Uh, you know, this anger is very useful when it's used in a way, right, in a way that's skillful. So I think this may be uh, kind of a way out, as you're asking. Mm -hmm. You know, Foucault was also interested in what he called the care of the self as a form of resistance, not just as a form of co-optation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that's where the leading edge may be uh, in, in uh, not, you know, falling into, let's say, the panopticon trap of uh, turning our own observation on ourselves to, the, to be, become mindfulness police. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, like mindfulness bullies in a way of our own, of our own <laughs> human experience, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. We, we, we spoke with um, a meditation instructor a couple weeks ago. His name is Dr. Larry Ward. And he really, he really emphasized this idea of an embodied mindfulness. Um, he, he wrote a book called, um, he, it should be coming out pretty sh soon, uh, America's uh, Racial Karma. Um, and he focuses a lot on this idea of an embodied mindfulness that you cannot have, like the first level is merely just, you know, calming oneself down, doing uh, a little bit of care towards the self, but that there's some deeper level where you have to tune in with those emotions and you have to actually feel them to get any sort of, liberation or equanimity with uh, between your values and actions. So I, I've, I've been trying to reconcile that personally with the ways that we can use mindfulness and have mindfulness without, you know, seeding that ground into uh, a neoliberalized agenda. I don't know if that resonates with you in terms of that, that idea of an embodied mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, I think that's definitely, uh, a given uh, uh i think there's it's complex um i i think it's i think 
You know, I think mindfulness is just a term that's so laden now. I, 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 I wouldn't even use it going forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, just personally speaking, uh, I think it just, it has too much cultural baggage now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, you know, the typical approach to meditation or mindfulness is, you know, we, most people come to it because they seek a sense of uh, relaxation, rest. They want a respite, uh, some detachment, um, you know, some sense of ease. Uh, but I think that's part of the problem because I think um, that could be a stopping point. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm good with my, I'm good with me now. I, you know, I could go, go back to business as usual. I had my little rest, you know, uh, and that's kind of a privatized spirituality when you, when, mm-hmm. when it stops at that point, because then there's no further need to investigate any further. Uh, but I think what I'm talking about, maybe you're the person you mentioned, this embodied notion, like you said, we need a much more energized state of being. Mm-hmm. That is kind of the cultivation uh, that is not just, you know, oh, here I am sitting 20 minutes a day and now I can go back to, to working for the man, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and not, you know, kind of comply. Uh, but we need this, uh, we need this more vibrant, energized state of being that um, uh, can be put, put to use. Um, and I think I think a lot of people could spend a long time practicing mindfulness, uh, and just end up in this kind of dull, silent space, and and kind of mistake that uh, for. If I'm not mistaken, you call that a disimagination almost. Um, oh yeah, the dis- uh, Henry Giraud, the disimag the disimagination machine, <laughs> critical theorist, critical pedagogy. Uh, Henry Giraud, he's a great educational theorist. Once sent him an email in high school asking him for like uh, for something, and I he never responded back to me. It was a very sad thing. But I, I have read some of his work and that idea of a radical reimagination and like his he, idea he's on Twitter. You might be able to get him through Twitter. That's what I'll do. I'll tweet him a very sad text yeah. or a sad tweet, like you didn't text you didn't text me back uh, in high school. Um, but yeah, so as you were saying, you, uh, there there has to be some sort of you could end up doing mindfulness for a long time and just be in. A silent state, uh, a solemn state, uh, but there does need to be something more beyond that, and there could be something more beyond that. Um, yeah, I think another problem when we're getting more into the pedagogy now is, um, is that uh, okay? Take for example, paying attention. Right, that we're given instructions. You know, everyone, if you're going into a mindfulness class, you, you receive instructions of some kind, whatever they may be. Um, and um, in a way, these instructions can be, in a way, kind of appropriated uh, and become kind of another kind of regime within your own mind. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the instructions almost become a source of tension because then you're, uh, you, you know, you're told, watch the breath, you know, watch your thoughts, right? And in a way, like, be aware, you know, in a way it becomes almost like, a, like, a, like I said, a mindfulness bully sitting behind and, oh, you're not doing it right. You, you're mind wandering now, you know. In a way, it's like, wow, that doesn't sound like it's creating a sense of peace for me. It's like, wow, you know, now I've got like a parent yelling at me. Um, um, 
And so thoughts become the enemy and, and then we feel like we're not doing it right. Oh, I got to try harder. No, I got to go on a 10 day retreat now. Mm. So I had to up the effort, you know, mm. uh, and, uh, that, uh, we become so identified with the practice itself that that itself becomes uh, an obstacle. And, uh, and when we do that, we start projecting goals, you know, okay, if I meditate this much or this way, uh, it'll lead to X, Y, and Z. You know, I start having these curative fantasies. I start having concepts and expectations. Or when meditation goes really well, we go, oh, wow, that was really good. You know, wow, I'm making progress. You know, I'm getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's, in a way, it's feeding the self-orientation again. How would sure. you embed this into a system, this, 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 the knowledge that you gain from mindfulness and further readings and contemplating about this, how would you embed this into a curriculum or, uh, or these organizations and how would you try to alter them? Or would you just say, to hell with them all and we need to dismantle the system, let it burn and then move on <laughs> to some revolutionary change? Well, that would be the easy answer, the letter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Zizek uh, would also agree with that. But, you know, going back to my days of being in an in organizational development consultant, the whole idea of being an OD consultant was um, theoretically, uh, the whole system is your client, right? So you're theoretically working, you're supposed to work for the whole system. And, uh, and, but that, you know, I realized that that just is not the case, that who is sponsoring the people coming in to offer these programs? It's management. They're paying the bill. Um, so you can have good intentions and altruistic ideals and everything. Uh, but, uh, you know, who signs the checks, I think, is, is uh, you know, I may, I may sound very, uh, uh, sar- not sarcastic, but uh, cynical about it, but it's from my own experience that, um, uh, if you were going to try to do it in a different way that wasn't just an individualized treatment program, individualized uh, training and mindfulness, it would have to be somehow connected to uh, even, the tr- even this trend, what's called corporate social responsibility, CSR. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to uh, create more socially responsible corporations, whether it be environmentally or socially. Um, it would have to be tied to uh, more systemic uh, uh, goals. Um, there would have to be a more systemic approach to the diagnosis of why people are feeling stressed. Why do you want to provide mindfulness for individuals in the first place? let's let's do a workplace stressor survey let's let's have a, a kind of an action research program where we uh, try to understand the causes of stress that are not necessarily individual uh, you know and uh, you know that would be hard sell I, you know I don't know if management would buy buy uh, buy that kind of program that would challenge their their rights and their authority uh, and because then the burden is going to be shared by, by management. They would have to make changes. They would have to be open to making 
maybe some significant changes and uh, challenging their authority and their power. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I saw when I was doing, we were doing what was known as uh, workplace redesign or uh, large, large systems change interventions and corporations and organizations. These were large scale experiments where we were trying to remove layers of bureaucracy and layers of authority and of control on schedules. I mean, kind of the, the whole workplace democracy movement that was very popular in the late 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Those experiments in, in small pockets, uh, you know, small pockets of innovation were very successful. Uh, you had, for example, in the uh, General Foods, uh, Procter & Gamble, General Electric, we had uh, you, had, you would have some factories that were designed with these principles, that democratic kind of democratization of the workplace. And it would be fantastic in terms of lower absenteeism, higher productivity, higher job satisfaction. Uh, but they were either defunded or, uh, you know, when, when the sponsors that were leading these efforts kind of moved on, they were never sustained. And they were never diffused to the, to the whole company because they were challenges, they were too threatening to the, to the centers of power within the corporations. So it was, it was, when I saw this happening, I'm like, wait a minute, you guys, you guys want more efficiency and productivity, here it is. And like, oh, well, not that much. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, our, our status and our kind of rights are being, you know, questioned and challenged. So we're gonna kind of like, let that kind of die out. And that's when I said, that's it. I'm done consulting. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not consulting for corporations anymore. This is a slight tangent, but I watched this uh, small short video uh, before talking, um, before coming on here today. Um, and it was about pirates and like, it was a distinction. Pir pirates? Yeah. It was pirates. Okay. Yeah, I have, I have a, a fascination with pirates. Okay. <laughs> um, because it's, they have a really interesting social organization. For all of the things that pirates do wrong and are bad about, they have a very, the reason why somebody would be a pirate is because they didn't want to work a nine to five job on you know, a, a queen ship, let's say. Um, because there were inequities in that system, the ship, uh, the queen ship captain would be paid way more. There was uh, a, a vested interest, much like our, our modern day capitalist ship owners of like, let's say Apple, Google or whatever, they have a vested interest in seeing that ship uh, succeed. And there is significant pay disparity from the very top all the way to the very bottom. But what was different about pirate ships, if you were, if you had the, uh, as the guy who made the video uh, called it, the personality matrices to be more risk averse and put yourself out there, you would end up in a far more uh, egalitarian society, wherein there would be an actual social contract that would be voted upon and written by everybody. The, uh, the captain would get two times the, the whatever the bounty is, the quartermaster would get about one and a half, and then the surgeon and carpenter would be get somewhere between one, uh, one and one fourth and like one and one third. Um, and everybody else equally shared that, that wealth. And you could vote the captain or the quartermaster out whenever. Uh, it was a completely egalitarian system. You could even leave if you didn't want to. Um, and one of the interesting things about pirates was once they took over a, uh, a, a ship, uh, if, you, if the ship, the queen ship, decided that they wanted to go to uh, fight about it, they would be torturing just to prove a point to keep the marketing level of the pirates up to show that we're really bad guys. But if the uh, 
if the employees or if the, uh, the lowerly stewards of the ship would sell out the captain, um, then there would be a captain's judging. So uh, they would judge it, they would judge the captain and everybody would get to share their grievance against it. And it, that seems like something, that seems like a huge challenge to power, very akin to what you're describing, because the revolutionary change that would need to occur, the social democracy that would occur uh, in these organizations where we would challenge some of the generalized stressors that be uh, affecting these people would be a questioning of the captain. It would be a challenge, a trying of the captain of, in, in a sense. Um, and that that's that's problematic. Like I wouldn't want to be a captain in that scenario because I'm probably screwed. Like I, <laughs> like uh, if you look at most of the disparities, you know, the janitor versus that person where the janitor has an equal voice in this open court setting does not have the same uh, doesn't make the same money as the, the captain of the ship. So there's going to be some um, some anger there. Uh, so I guess like it does get back to like the only way that you could do it, which seems to be a, a core a thesis of the book is by challenging or breaking down the neoliberalized structures that exist in today. And I guess yeah. like th there's no other way to do it, right? There's, you would have to, you would have to break that down. Um, but I do want to change context really quick. Uh, and you can totally reply to that, but I do want to change context in the context of schools, which I think would key in uh, to what our lab primarily spends time on. How do we, break down those structures and create a revolutionary change within that school space where we may have a little bit more flexibility. Um, In yeah. higher ed. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I haven't really given much thought to higher ed. Um, yeah. I, I mean, most of my focus has been more in K to 12 and, um, uh, but yeah, let me just say a few things that you just mentioned. I like that pirate thing. Um, but yeah, I think that the whole neoliberal kind of ethos, the whole neoliberal kind of cultural context is part of what we're up against. Uh, because, it, you know, it feeds right into this kind of individualization of all social problems. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that becomes the default cultural context for mindfulness, which uh, almost seamlessly uh, line, aligns itself with that, with that, with that discourse. And um, so, you know, I played around with kind of a rough sketch of what what would be a social mindfulness, what would be a civic mindfulness that, you know, what would that look like? How would it, you know, what would be the concepts that would you know help inform that that's the last chapter of the book kind of it's kind of a really rough sketch it goes back to your question about how what we're dealing with is highly americanized well uh i know so, you know there there was a series of articles that uh that i that initiated in uh, the online uh media outlet called transformation it's part of the open democracy that dot net mm -hmm. i might want to look at those because um uh I wrote a couple articles and that kind of triggered a bunch of other articles by um, mindfulness teachers in the United Kingdom. Uh, there is a network that they started. It's called the Mindfulness and Social Change Network. Uh, and there are a number of mindfulness teachers that were trained in, you know, conventional, traditional mindfulness, but then went beyond it uh, and tried to begin to kind of say, well, we don't want to just do therapeutic clinical mindfulness. That's not 
what we want to do. And so they kind of recontextualized it more within their social political uh, movements that they were, uh, that they're uh, engaged in. And I know if you look at those articles, you'll, 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 you'll find that there are some really good seeds, really good ideas uh, uh, how to break, break away from the neoliberal kind of mold that mindfulness is in now. Uh, um, but I guess, you know, one of the ways you would maybe uh, have some sort of survey perhaps asking people, what are the contextual or the uh, institutional stressors that they're dealing with? Uh, in higher ed, in their in the academic environment, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of identify those, um, and then maybe you you kind of link those then to kind of the program where people can become empowered to uh, ask critical questions of people that have the power and authority to do something about those institutional stressors. So it becomes an organizational change effort in a way, too. It kind of is coupled with an, an organizational change effort. It's not just an individualized therapeutic intervention. Secret pirates, I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what comes to mind, too, is, you know, uh, workplace cooperatives. You know, um, that's part of the – they've been around a while, but, you know, there's, a one, there's an economist who I follow – and he he has a project called Democracy at Work. And Richard Wolf, he's he's out of the New School of Social Research. You may have seen him. He's yeah, he's he also, got really popular recently. Yeah, I've been following his stuff, and he he's been on Chris Hedges' show a lot, uh, and he's been on a lot. Of, he has his own kind of uh, TV YouTube channel, mm -hmm. but uh, very practical. I mean, it's very practical that what uh, he's proposing is exactly what you're saying is that, yeah, we don't need these uh, inequitable hierarchical structures in the workplace cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And um, so that to me would be uh, a new way that we could situate mindfulness practices, right? We'd be having a different kind of structural context like that. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Um, so in order to respect time, I do want to uh, open up the floor in case anybody sure. else had any questions, because usually towards the end of these shows, we like to have uh, all of our listeners uh, uh, enter in any questions they have. So we'll open it up that floor. And then after that, we just have a couple rapid fire questions for you uh, that we traditionally do at the end of every episode. But before we get there, um, does anybody else have any other questions? Thank you, Chase. The pirate analogy is something that <laughs> great visual visualization. Seriously, uh, Dr. Purser, I wanted to ask a little bit about your experience being a Zen Dharma teacher. Um, I was reading that you're part of the Korean Zen Taigo order. Uh huh. Um, so is is some of your uh, philosophical disputes against how modern mindfulness is uh, taught to individuals? Um, does, does some of that come because you have a much more personal uh, understanding of how indigenous mindfulness 
can be used as a platform for transformational change? And if so, does that necess necessitate a, a more inherent religious component into how mindfulness is taught? So maybe not even... I, I don't think so. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that informs my, my, my thinking. Um, um, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the way of maybe summarizing it. Um, uh, there's a saying in Zen, right, that Zen is good for nothing, uh, where I would contrast that, that mindfulness is good for everything. Uh, and so those those two are diametrically different in a sense that you know it all comes back to this idea of are we uh, are we challenging the self orientation at a deep level or not? Uh, I guess I guess I just my personal bias is uh, that I w I don't want to see these practices sold short. I don't want to sell them out or sell them short for their pot potential. And so if, if our cultural understanding comes to a stop at where we are now with mindfulness, I think that's a sad kind of outcome in a way. So I don't think it necessarily means that, oh, we all now have to become Zen Buddhist or, but I think it does mean we have to uh, go deeper in in terms of uh the radical kind of inquiry needed to uh open up these practices that would then foster uh more of a liber liberation or liberatory consciousness it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious approach to do that uh, so um yeah, I'm thinking, uh -huh. uh, you know, religion. Uh, Isn't, that's a modern to, term, too. Yeah, it's sometimes referred to as the opiate of the masses, right? So it's not yeah. you know, always associated with change, but, you know, but I think uh, if we look at, like, uh, uh, religious beliefs, uh, like John Lewis, uh, uh, you know, exemplified, you know, where you, where you connect that, that, that spirituality and, and moral yeah. system. Uh, right. And, and focus that, that, uh, emotional energy towards uh, societal change that's that's a, that's yeah. a different different take on well, spirituality yeah that's an important point and that that that's one of the uh interesting uh weaknesses you could say of uh of the history of buddhism because unlike the judeo christian traditions they have a uh a prophetic they call it a a prophetic prophetic voice in those traditions where uh justice was part of the religious uh impulse mm -hmm. movement towards justice um you don't see that in the buddhist traditions so much for various reasons and uh uh and that's why you know the a modern sort of a modern movement called socially engaged buddhism is trying to you know, because Buddhism has only been in the West, in the West, you know, for 100, 150 years at most, probably only from a practice point of view, what, since the early 60s, 
mid-60s. That's not, not very long. So we're inventing it as we go along, a cultural translation. And that's why people like David Loy, my friend David Loy, um, other people like Joanna Macy, uh, you know, there's this whole kind of small little uh, movement called socially engaged Buddhism that's trying to, to bring in more of this kind of prophetic uh, side of, uh, of, uh, of uh, contemplative practice. Um, so yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be. Um, and religion is a, a term that uh, Europeans invented to try to make sense of. Um, uh, yeah, it's a modern term. So um, <laughs> this whole idea of religion versus secular it's a it's an artificial binary that we've we've constructed. <laughs> One of the questions from our grad students yeah. um, is, uh, from Goldanis. You said you're interested in being a mentor in mindfulness. How will you structure the content and activities of the class slash gathering so that the participants can transform the energy that they collect from awareness uh, of their emotions into action? Well, I'm, as I said, I'm not so sure I want to be a mentor for mindfulness. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure of that question. Can whoever asked it clarify a bit more? You said at the beginning you're considering now to start a class or something about mm -hmm. mindfulness that you not not about mindfulness. No. 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 Oh, okay. I misunderstood you then. <laughs> what was that class about? Uh, it's it's basically a, a class that follows these three books that I've been studying. Um, it's it's an approach that uh, uses uh, inquiry rather than uh, formal meditation. What what books are those? Uh, the they're not publicly available yet, as far as I know. But they're called Lotus Lotus Body, Lotus Language, and Lotus. Mind. There are three books, part of a trilogy. And uh, let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, so these are three books. The first book is uh, basically about embodiment, and the second book is about how language shapes our, uh, our whole way of uh, being and thinking and the, the problems of language but how we have to work with language because we can't deny that. I mean, how are we going to communicate anything without using language? But language also entraps us in many ways. Uh, and then the mind itself. These are three books. It's an interesting uh, approach because it's, uh, there's three characters in the book. There's actually dialogues between three fictional characters and they basically are arguing with each other and asking questions uh, on all these topics throughout the book. And then there's commentary along the way. So uh, it's a different, really weird approach. <laughs> Reminds me of um, like the, um, the naming of this podcast, like the actual symposia itself, um, Plato symposium, um, the dialogues that, that occur between, between all those characters and like um, as the arguments and the conversation one can have about a particular topic and the symposium's case love. Um, yeah, dialogue. Yeah, dialogue. Uh, this is the approach. It's the approach to dialogue. And that, that brings up another really good point, is that you see in Buddhism, Western Buddhism, in mindfulness circles, this kind of privileging of silence in a lot of, uh, a lot of programs, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And I understand the place for that. I understand that. But, uh, and, and a lot of times language is seen as the enemy. You know, it's like we have to reach the state of pure awareness, you know. Um, but I, I'm a real fan of David Bohm, this uh, physicist who, quantum physicist who, and later in his career, he uh, became very philosophical and he uh, created this approach called the Bohm, his Bohmian, Bohmian approach to dialogue as a way of getting at deep assumptions through dialogue. It's really hard to do on our own. So it's like by having partners in dialogue, it, it can really foster a deeper uh, understanding because uh, we are socially embodied beings, right? We're not autonomous selves <laughs> yeah. okay so um uh, per tradition at the end of every podcast we like to ask for our guests to set up rapid fire questions are you ready uh, what are three things you would recommend people uh to read on mindfulness Ooh. or meditation broadly three things hmm on mindfulness as a as a practice, or mindfulness as a phenomena, or just I would I would really recommend uh, uh, Jeffrey uh, Jeff uh, Mindful America is that the name of the book? Let's see, Jeff, Jeffrey Wilson uh, Mindful America, great book, wow, amazing book. Uh, I would also recommend oh uh, Evan Thompson's new book. Why I am not a Buddhist. Uh, he he's a uh, philosopher up at uh, University of British Columbia. One of the uh, he's been he was very active in the Mind and Life uh, Institute. Um, uh, has some really good material on on uh, the mindfulness uh, movement and kind of the problems with neuroscience the studies of meditation. It's a great book that just came out this year. I interviewed him on my podcast too, uh, Mindful Cranks. Um, so yeah, Jeff Wilson, uh, uh, Jeff Wilson. And then if you want a classic view of, of uh, mindfulness, get Bhikkhu Analyo's book, The Satipatthana Sutra. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was his PhD dissertation. He turned it into a book. I think it's wisdom publications. I'm not sure. Could be Oxford University Press. I can't remember, but it it's Biku Analio. He's a German monk, Theravada monk. That's how I really uh, got a real good understanding of the four foundations of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. The classic uh, Theravada understanding. Once you see that, well, you'd be blown away by uh, seeing how much more there is to it than just mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, I'll definitely have to give that a look. And also, um, you didn't uh, you didn't put it down here, but time, space, and knowledge—that's definitely something I'm going to go back and read. I'm really interested. Well, in I want to hear back from you if you do that. Go into okay. the deep waters there. That's time, space, and knowledge—a new vision of reality. Dharma publishing. So, or what are some meditative practices that you would recommend uh, people try? That would take them beyond the normal, uh, superficial layer of just becoming calm and breathing. Ah, uh, hmm. That's an interesting one. Uh, one practice would be to visualize your body as a giant body uh, and try to break it down in as many details as you possibly can. 
In other words, see all the layers of the body, all its complexity, all the boundaries that make up cells or organs. The, you know, it's kind of a visualization where you penetrate all the layers of the body. And once you get a sense of how almost every part of the body is made up of other parts and smaller parts, you just keep almost like an electron microscope. Just keep penetrating and then visualize everything kind of becoming transparently open. That you open up the sense of what you think is opening. In other words, you open up what you, even your concepts of what opening is. Another practice would be stop worrying about trying to be in the present moment. Just forget about that. Instead, uh, let's say uh, let's say you're focused on a goal that's in the future. Instead, imagine yourself in the future, looking back to now. In other words, reverse. <laughs> try to try to in your mind. Imagine yourself in the future, whether it's one second from now or whether it's 10 years from now, whatever it may be, and you're looking back. And what this practice is trying to do is to challenge the sense that time is moving in a certain direction from to, from to. It's moving from here to there. You want to challenge this temporal structure is what causes a lot of our stress and anxiety and problems. This is an underlying structure which we don't question. So even trying to be trying to be in the present moment is problematic to begin with. It's because it already sets up a dualistic structure. Here I am located here, but I need to be in somewhere else, the present moment. That's a concept, right? So try doing that. It's called reversing temporal momentum. And you could do it for the past. You could like imagine that, you know, when we, when we imagine the past or a memory, we always think we're looking back towards it. Instead, try to be in the past, but looking forward to here. So you're also reversing that kind of thing. And then try doing it both at the same time, where here you are in the future looking back to here, and here you are in the past looking back to here. And you play with that. Play with that as a feeling, right? And you're trying to loosen up the rigidity of, 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 of linear lived time. Right? So that it doesn't become such a outside force. Time, time is time is a dynamic that we're not separate from. Right? We're not separate from it. We are time. We we are an, we're all movement is time. So if time's not like a river and we're a bystander looking, you know, that it's uh, like hitting us like we're a victim. You know, oh, you know. <laughs> bearing down on me third one is stop watching your breath stop trying to observe the breath okay um just breathe just breathing that's the practice there's no watcher there's no need to do anything Those are great. I really like those. Those are, I hope everybody listening uh, tries <laughs> I definitely will. Um, this time one seems like the most fun. <laughs> so I'll probably start there. That, that one seems really interesting. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, our final question is, what's something I didn't ask that you wish I had? 
I think you've done a great job. I, I really can't think of anything. Oh, well, great. That's yeah. what we love to hear. And on that bombshell, <laughs> thank you everyone very much. This is our season finale of the Mindful uh, Symposium series. So if you liked it, we have about seven or eight other episodes. Please go back and listen to all of them. Give us a like, a rating, a review on all of this, all of our services. You can find us at Mindful Coops on any of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and Dr. Purser, would you like to plug any of your social media or any of your, uh, or your podcast or anything? Yeah, check out the Mindful Cranks. Uh, mindfulcranks.com and uh, I have a website ronpurser.com if you'd like to go there too. All right, perfect. Well, thank you everyone uh, so much for listening to this series. Thank you for all of our great amazing team for supporting this series and everybody who's helped out in producing, uh, editing and everything. Um, and with that, thank you very much Dr. Purser for joining us on this seminal episode. episode. Uh,